0: You know, as I was sharing about this new ministry, it delights my heart. Uh, I have family in Kentucky who are deaf, and they have asked me how in the world they can try and engage with us. And as we started this initiative, my heart just started beaming with joy, thinking about even family of mine who want to learn more about Jesus. We get the opportunity to do that together a couple of weeks ago uh, unfortunately our live stream audio went kaput and uh, long story short we had a computer that did a update on a saturday night of course right and i had a church member who contacted me and told me hey we saw where the the live stream audio went silent but then it reminded me this is what most deaf people have to experience and i thought well man we need to, we're going about to fix that and so i'm excited about this new New ministry. You know, this week I have been in competition with a mouse. And it's not just any mouse, it's a ninja mouse. So, long story short, in the back porch, I've laid the trap. I've put on the latch a lot of peanut butter, smothered it on there. I lay, raised up the hammer. And I'll come back the next morning, and the trap is in the same position with all of the peanut butter gone. (laughs) This thing thinks that I'm feeding it dinner every night, right? I set the trap, but this thing keeps escaping. That's kind of what we see happening in Mark chapter 12. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We see religious leaders who set a trap to try and catch Jesus. They lure him in. They prepare to drop the hammer on him, but each time Jesus finds his way out of trap. As a faith family, we're walking through the gospel of Mark together and it has been amazing to see the miracles of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Over and over and over throughout Mark's gospel, we see where Jesus is continually teaching. The word teach shows up 27 times in Mark's He's continually teaching truths about the kingdom, whether it's to groups of thousands of people or to a smaller group or to his 12 disciples or just a handful of people. Jesus is continually teaching. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is days away from suffering, crucifixion, and victorious resurrection from the dead. And while he's teaching in the temple, Jesus is going toe to toe with the leading religious leaders of his day. The sharpest minds, the most educated and studied men of Judaism are trying to trip Jesus up in his words, but they fail miserably. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. The scripture says, "...then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words." "'When they came, they said to him, "'Teacher, we know you are truthful "'and don't care what anyone thinks, "'nor do you show partiality, "'but teach the way of God truthfully. "'Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? "'Should we pay or shouldn't we? "'But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, "'Why are you testing me? "'Bring me a denarius to look at.' "'They brought a coin. "'Whose inscription and image is this?' he asked them. Caesars, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. This morning in the text, I want you to notice what these Jewish leaders did to Jesus. I want you to see first, they set the trap They set the trap. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they've already tried to stop Jesus. They have already confronted him. They have stepped to him. We saw this back in chapter 11, verse 27. Well, after Jesus humbles them before this large crowd, they leave verse 12 of chapter 12. But then, verse 13, they send the Pharisees. They send the Herodians to have a turn at Jesus. Hey, you guys, you guys need to go and take him down. But it's important that we're able to describe and understand these two groups. Growing up as a kid, I went to University of Kentucky basketball games all the time. And I remember walking onto the concourse, and it smelled like popcorn, and it's a sea of blue. There are people everywhere, and there are these old men in these blue blazers holding up this book, yelling, program, get yourself a program. And inside the program was information about the players, their statistics, and all the things happening with them. What's well, important before we get too far here that let me give you the personnel program of these two groups that we see right here in verse 13. The first that I want you to see are the Pharisees. They are legalists. They're legalists. They're committed to the law of God. They're theologically conservative. They hold a high view of scripture, but they also have a high view of their own man-made traditions. They sought to meticulously obey all of the Old Testament scriptures. They're passionate about outward showtime religion. They hated Roman rule. They despised all who supported Roman occupation of Israel. Now, the second group that we see in the text are the Herodians. They are the loyalists. They were committed not to the law of God primarily, but to the law of Rome. Their loyalty was to Rome. They were passionate, not about religion, but about politics. They supported Herod Antipas and his political actions. They would often play the fence between the Jews and the Romans. Well, these two groups didn't like each other. The Pharisees and the Herodians were enemies. They were diametrically opposed to each other politically and theologically. They were enemies. But you know the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, there is someone that the Pharisees and the Herodians hated more than each other. These two groups had a common enemy. Who was it? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus disrupted the religious agenda of the Pharisees, and Jesus disrupted the political agenda of the Herodians. Both groups wanted Jesus dead. In Luke chapter 13, verse 31, it says that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And as we saw back in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. So instead of fighting each other, they joined forces. They agreed that they're going to partner together. They have a common goal, Operation Take Down Jesus. In Luke's account of this, he says that they watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so they could catch him and what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They sent spies. This is how the Sanhedrin, the 70 religious leaders of Judaism, wanted to take Jesus down. So the Pharisees and Herodians, they approached Jesus to trap him in his words. They're seeking to lure him into saying something against Rome or against the people of God. Now remember, because of Passover, Jerusalem was a political hotbed. It was intense. There was a, an intensity in the air as there is a large crowd of people. And Rome is ready to snuff out any whiff of insurrection. With massive crowds in the city, they're ready to move with force against any rebels who rise up against them. From the Pharisees' perspective, the Herodians could be allies to help them accomplish their purpose of killing Jesus. And so these two enemies unite together to trap Jesus in his words, which leads to number two, they laid debate they begin their question with an appetizer, all right? It's a wheelbarrow full of flattery. Verse 14, teacher, we know that you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Now, someone here went to diversity training, okay? They are laying it on thick here. Now, what they're saying is true. Jesus is truthful, Jesus is impartial. Jesus does speak for God, absolutely. He's able to speak truthfully for God because he is God. They just don't believe him or submit to him. What they're actually doing here is they're setting Jesus up for the question. You hear this all the time in sports. That before a game, they'll often interview a coach and that coach will talk up the other team and say, man, they're strong and they're fast. They're, they know what they're doing. Got a great defense, great offense. What they're doing is they're making the other team look really, really good so that when they beat them, they can say, man, what a great team that we just built. We just beat. Here's what's happening. They're trying to set up Jesus. They're buttering him up. They're talking him up. They're getting to set him up so that they can spike on him. So they set him up for the question. Now what's the question? Verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now this question was designed to get Jesus in trouble with either side, the Jews or the Herodians. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, well, then the Jews would be angry for considering him a pro-Rome traitor. Like, Jesus, how can you take their side? You must not be one of us. Now, if Jesus says, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians would be angry. They would consider him an insurrectionist. He's an anti-Rome rebel. He needs to be arrested for at least tax evasion. We need to take him down. Now, if Jesus refused to answer or if he evaded the question, it would have been disastrous because now these two groups would have thought they've just stumped him. Now, you can imagine the glee that the Herodians and the Pharisees had as they boxed Jesus in with this no-win question. If Jesus picked the wrong side, the other group would be angry and accuse him. The Pharisees waited with bated breath, hoping for a yes answer. The Herodians hoping for a no answer. Jesus could not escape their question. You can almost hear their evil laugh with delight, and it's an impossible situation. Or is it? Because here's the truth. You cannot outwit outsmart or outfox the one who knows all things. They were competing with God's sovereign son, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation the one in whom is sovereign over all, the one who created all things, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things were made by him and for him and through him. And through him, all things hold together. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21, verse 30, there is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel that can prevail against the Lord. Remember what David said in Psalm 139? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is their sum. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. God said in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as Heaven is higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Job said it like this in Job 40, verse two. Who can contend with the Almighty? Here are these two groups trying to suplex Jesus and he is able to wipe out their feet and say, let me tell you the truth about the kingdom. You can't take Jesus down. Right now they're going toe to toe in a battle of wits with the one who made the mind. They are trying to trip up Jesus, to trap Jesus, to prevent him from being the leader that he is looking like he's going to be. The Lord is right in front of them and he is not rattled. He is not confused. He is not panicked. So even though the trap has been set, the bait has been laid down. It leads to number three. They were shocked at his escape. Verse 15. This verse sets the tone for what Jesus was thinking in this moment. It says, But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus sees past the facade. He sees past the fake. He knows the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. He knows what these guys are scheming against him. And hear me, Jesus knows your thoughts too. The motivations of your heart, the Lord sees and he knows man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at your heart. The Lord is fully aware of what's going on right here in you right now and at all times. You cannot hide your attitudes, your thoughts, or your motivations from the one who knows all things. Here is Jesus examining the hearts of these who are seeking to take Him down, and he sees it pure as day, and he sees the same with you. He sees the motivations of your heart. He knows your thoughts before you think them. This is the one who knows all things. He's fully aware of what is going on right here in your heart and in your life. And you know the beauty of it all? He still loves you. The Lord still loves you. Though our hearts and thoughts are wicked and selfish and prideful and sinful, yet the Lord still loves and the Lord still redeems. And so those who humble themselves and bring themselves before the Lord and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner, he will show mercy. Jesus here is fully aware of the hypocritical attitude and posture of those who are trying to take him down. He asks them this question, Why are you testing me? That word for test, it's the exact same word that Mark uses earlier in chapter 1, verse 13, when Satan tempted, tested, tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You see, just as Satan tempted Jesus to sin, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they have a demonic intent to tempt Jesus to sin. You see, just as Satan's temptation of Jesus failed in the desert, the Jewish leader's temptation of Jesus failed in the temple. The enemy is behind all of this, trying to distract Jesus from the mission. And, beloved, if you are in Christ, the enemy is trying to distract you from the mission. The enemy wants you to take your eyes off of Jesus and to put them upon yourself or upon the situations that you're facing right now. Don't take the bait. You are being tempted to take your eyes off of Christ and to forget the mission that is in front of you. Here, Satan wants to distract Jesus from what he has come to do. He is testing, he is tempting Jesus and he does the same with you and me. Let us be on guard that we intentionally keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's be a people who focus on the mission that God has given to us of the great commission of making disciples of all nations. We exist as a church, not as a country club for ourselves, not to build a brand or to make our name great, but to make the name of Jesus great. We exist to spread a supremacy of Christ so that all nations, people, groups, and tongues might treasure Jesus beginning right here in Shelby County. This is the mission that God has placed before us. We've got to be continually diligent of making sure that we don't get distracted by the things of this world. We don't get distracted by thinking of preservation or protecting ourselves we exist for the glory of Christ in pointing people to him. You see, the enemy's here is trying to pull Jesus away from his mission. So Jesus turns it around and says, all right, someone give me a denarius, verse 15. A denarius is a coin. It's one day's wage. He asks, whose inscription is on it? I love it. Jesus, once again, teaching through questions, right? Right? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own son? This is what Jesus does. He uses questions to teach, continually drawing people out. Well, they they respond, it's Caesar's. It's kind of like in our money, we have the inscription of a president, right? We have the image, the inscription of our president's. But for them, instead of it saying, in God we trust, the denarius had written on it, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, the Jews considered this statement blasphemy. A Roman emperor who's claiming to be a god? This is idolatry. Well, Jesus holds up this coin and a hush fell over the crowd. What's he going to say? Well, Jesus responds with one of the most significant words in history. Verse 17. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Boom. Mic drop. Instead of picking a side, Jesus rose above the fray, and he spoke truth. You see, instead of an either-or situation, he says it's both-and. This one statement by Jesus is astounding. I was reading this week that that this statement is considered by some to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. One person said that this statement shaped Western civilization. You see, as citizens of the kingdom, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, which means we don't cheat on April 15th. We pay our taxes. Instead of usurping Caesar's authority, instead of overthrowing Rome, Jesus points to the proper way to honor governmental authority and to honor the Lord. Jesus here is upholding how man is to exist and function in the world while living under a human government. Y'all hear me on this. Jesus is not an anarchist. Jesus is not someone who goes charging down the Capitol. Remember the governmental structure in first century early church? This was paganism at its worst. These Romans were called upon to worship Caesar as a god or potentially be executed. So when a follower of Jesus says, there is a Lord that is greater than Caesar, there is a King that is greater than Caesar, then often our brothers and sisters of the early church faced persecution or even execution for such a declaration. And yet Paul says, we are to submit to governing authorities since God is the one who instituted and established government. In Romans 13, Paul says, pay your obligations to everyone taxes to those who you owe taxes tolls to those who you owe tolls respect to those who you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor you see god is the one who instituted and established marriage between one man and one woman for life god is the one who established the institution of the church born again followers of Jesus who covenant together as a family. God is the one who established the institution of governments. You see, Christ followers have a dual citizenship, earthly and heavenly. We bear the responsibility to live as good citizens on earth by living as faithful citizens of heaven. We bear the responsibility to the government for as long as it does not interfere with our ability to worship God and obey the scriptures. Now, should Christians submit to governing authorities in all situations? No. We see throughout scripture, not we we hold God and his word higher than any earthly institution, we obey God first we obey his word first. Scripture gives us examples like Daniel and Esther and Peter and James and John and Paul. That if we're ever asked to do something that is immoral or unethical or unbiblical, we protest. We, we push back. But at the same time, we render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Which means we honor and respect and submit to governing authorities. We give to the government what belongs to the government. But don't miss the second part of what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, and to God the things that are God's. Whose image was on the denarius? Caesar's. Because the coin bore his image, the money belonged to him. Now, what about you? Whose image do you bear? Whose image are you made in? You bear the image of God. You reflect what God is like. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. We belong to God because we bear his image. Now, Jesus's Jewish audience immediately made the connection of what he was saying here. Their eyes would have been like saucers as Jesus is holding up this coin and using it as a teaching tool and connecting it back to Genesis 1. So we give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's and we give to God what is God's. What do we give back to God? You. You give back to God what bears his image and it's you. You are his. You were made by God and for his glory. You bear his image. His inscription is upon you physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. God is the one who put you together and he made you for himself. So now your entire life is to be rendered. It is to be given freely. Right back to God. See, Ultimately, God is the one who has total claim and total ownership over me and you. We are not our own. We are owned by the one who made us. Do you realize that you only woke up today because God said so? that God has given you life and breath and the ability to think and to feel and to know him personally. So the question is this. Follower of Jesus, have you given your life completely to the Lord? The Bible uses this word called consecration. Consecration is where you set yourself apart from sin and you set yourself apart to the Lord, Right? You're saying, I'm, I'm setting myself away from sin and the world, and I'm saying, Christ, you have all of me. You have all of my life. You have complete access. You made me. I'm yours. I was bought with a price, so now you have all of my life. That's what call, uh, Paul is calling us to in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, offer your body as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. You're saying, God, here's my life. You can have all of me. I exist for you, not for my fame, not for my name. I don't play for the name on the back of the jersey. I exist for the glory of King Jesus. You see, we render unto unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but we render unto God the things that are God's. It's him we are his we belong to him question have you separated yourself unto christ have you given jesus all of your life Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.15. And Jesus died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Jesus died and rose again so that in him and through him you might be his forever. This is what Christ came to do. And so that through faith in him, Jesus has all of your life. His mark as a follower of Jesus, his seal is placed upon you. Kenneth, what are you talking about? You see, in ancient days, an owner of a property would have a ring. And this ring would be connected to his identity and it was unique and distinct to only him. When a formal document was written, Wax would be placed upon the document and his ring would then be impressed upon the wax, thus making that document both personal and permanent. You see, when you believe the gospel and trust it in Christ, the Holy Spirit is God's seal upon you. It's his ring that he places upon you and says, personally and permanently, you belong to me. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1.13. That when you heard the gospel, when you believed upon Jesus, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. So now through Christ, the image of the invisible God He is now placed upon you personally and permanently by the Holy Spirit, which means now as one who has been bought with the price, the precious blood of Christ, because you have been marked, because you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, you now render unto God what is God's, namely you. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? Well, it's the impact point, and it's this. Offer Your entire life to Christ as an act of worship. Today, would you offer your life completely to Jesus? No holding back, not holding on to identity, not holding on to your finances, not holding on to your job or your family or your marriage or anything else in this world. You're saying, Lord, you have all of me. I'm all yours. I'm not sure if I can do that, Kenneth. Well, let me tell you why you can. It's because you and I we were on a trap. And the hammer of God's justice was about to fall upon us. The wrath that we deserved was going to fall squarely upon us. But then Jesus, God's perfect son, Stepped in, he took us off of the trap and laid himself down upon the cross. And he took the judgment for you. And through his death, he made a way for you to be forgiven. He made a way for you to be restored back into a right relationship with God. Through the cross, Jesus stepped in so that you might be his forever. So now we render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Let's be a people that render unto God what is God's.